welcome back to What Were You Thinking, the third series. I can't quite believe that this is a third series already, especially considering this all started off as a lockdown project to help kill time. But this season is going to be even bigger and better with some fantastic names lined up, including Mark Sedwell, Alistair Campbell, Aisha Hazarika and Simon Hart. And today I am joined by Julia Gillard, former Prime Minister to Australia and their first female Prime Minister. She is also Chair of the Global Partnership for Education who have their Global Replenishment coming up in July, which the UK is hosting. We discuss what it's like being the first female Prime Minister, what it's like showing up at international conferences as one of very few female leaders or in some instances the only woman in the room. We also talk about the importance of girls' education. This episode is supported by WaterAid, who are working to bring clean water, good hygiene and decent sanitation wash to everyone everywhere by 2030. They are working to support governments in developing countries to respond to the twin threats of the COVID-19 pandemic and the increasingly challenging effects of climate change. Investing in water, sanitation and hygiene saves lives and helps to build resilient communities in some of the poorest countries on Earth. Now, the global water and sanitation crisis is stark. To put this into perspective, 2 billion people don't have safely managed water for drinking, cooking or personal use. 4 billion people don't have safely managed sanitation. And in the middle of a pandemic, one in four healthcare facilities worldwide don't have a basic water supply. To reduce infant and maternal deaths, doctors and nurses need to have access to good hand washing. And to provide more girls with a decent education, they need access to good hygiene services. And with increasingly volatile weather patterns, sanitation services need to be resilient. Crucially, to prevent disease, people need basic access to soap and water. Now, these are all ambitions WaterAid shares with the UK government. But these laudable goals will never be realised whilst funding from the UK aid is being cut by up to 80%. The UK should be stepping up to meet these challenges rather than stepping back. Julia, thank you so much for coming on to What Were You Thinking? I am beyond thrilled uh, to have you as a guest. It's incredibly exciting. And, um, well, where to start? I think maybe best place to start is... um, is you know finding out which person has impacted your thinking or you know your life more generally well i'm delighted to be able to join you and the person i would identify is my father uh, both my father and mother were born in the united kingdom they're welsh they were born in wales uh, but they made the decision to migrate to australia in 1966 when i was 4 years old so very much australian Uh, My father influenced my early thinking about the world and about politics. He was always interested in current affairs. Uh, He was a shift worker. So when he was home in the daytime, he would listen to parliamentary question time on the radio and shout and interject as if he was sitting in the parliament. He was an active trade unionist. And he was the first one that made me think that it was important to connect with, analyse and be an advocate 
about the issues that were shaping your community and your world. And I think without that early sense of looking outwards, maybe the rest of my life would have been different. Yeah. So at what age do you think you, you realised you, you were sort of not destined for politics, but got the bug to like, draw you into politics and made you decide to actually, you know, do it seriously and, and, and full time? I guess I got the policy bug when I was in my second year at university. So despite all of these many discussions about politics in my family home, as a child, as a teenager, the penny never dropped that people like me could go into politics. I didn't think that. I did note, I'd have to say, when Margaret Thatcher got elected in 1979, I was uh, 17 turning 18 then, and given the politics of my household, you know, my family, uh, particularly my father being from a Welsh coal mining village, uh, you can imagine the adjectives that got put in front of the noun Thatcher uh, in my family home. They were not complimentary ones, uh, but at least that uh, enabled me to think that women could end up being a prime minister because looking at leadership in Australia at that time, it was all male. But for me, the bug about policy really hit in my second year at university. Uh, at that time, the then Conservative government made a lot of cutbacks to education. I was really conscious that I was amongst the first in my entire extended family to go to university. Uh, neither my parents had had the opportunity to finish secondary school. And so I thought that anything that cut back education and could jeopardise the likes of people like me getting that kind of opportunity was a fundamental wrong. And so I got involved in a protest campaign against those cutbacks. That happened at my local university, Adelaide University, but it happened right around the country. And it actually had some impact on the government's thinking. They backed down on a few of the cutbacks, not all of them, in the way of these things. But it gave me the taste that you could really get involved and make a difference. And if I then fast forward the years, it was that, the sense that you could care passionately about something and really impact your world that drove me on to start considering politics. Mm. And what was the experience then, you know, standing as a, as a woman, um, firstly just as, as an MP, but of course also as the first female prime minister, as you say, at a time where that was unusual and trailblazing, you know, what, what was that like and what are your reflections on that? Yeah, as, a, as a young woman, once again at Adelaide University, you know, I'd always believed that boys and girls were equal. And at Adelaide University, I first came across feminist theory, not that anybody was teaching gender studies way back when, uh, but, you know, the dialogue on campus in the women's group sort of influenced my thinking. So I knew this was a world in which women didn't get treated equally to men, but I thought it was changing fast and that I would live my adult life predominantly in a world of gender equality. Uh, and so, you know, when I entered politics, I, and, and by that I mean entered the Labor Party and was active in the Labor Party, I thought, you know, things are changing fast and we've got to be part of the change. So I was of that, of that generation of Labor women who fought for an affirmative action rule to bring more women into Parliament. Uh, I then went into Parliament myself and I thought, you know, we'll equalise all of this really quickly. And of course, you know, campaigning in the community, you end up, you know, hitting uh, 
casual and not so casual moments of sexism. Uh, and so, you know, you'd get the older party members who'd hold your hand and call you love. You'd get the, you know, commentary in the media, which was all about your appearance. But it seemed to me at my early stages of politics, when I was a backbencher, that it was you know, there, but it was not that harsh. It was pretty benign. What I found was the more publicly exposed I got and the more power I had in my hands, and particularly when I came through as Prime Minister, uh, the first woman to do so, then the ugly underside of the sexism became more and more evident. And it actually got quite madcap at times. Um, but it's it's something that I don't think the sexism grew. I think the volume and shrillness of it got worse the more powerful I became. So I think that in the public square particularly, whilst every woman encounters sexism, there is a particular level of vitriol and acid that is uh, that flows towards women who are somehow seen to have got above their station. Um, I think that's, yeah, that seems to be the, the case in in many, many countries. Um, and, you know, I, I personally, I love your the podcast you host, uh, and you obviously have done a great deal around the issue of women and leadership. And as, you know, just discussed, I mean, you've walked the walk and you you are an inspiration and a role model to, to many women and especially younger women out there. I mean, you, you referenced Thatcher. I mean, you'll, you'll be mentioned, I'm sure, by by many, many other women and hopefully many future female prime ministers. And so you've also written a book on that, of course. What do you think are the things that need changing or how do you go about encouraging more women into leadership positions? Whenever I have this conversation, I always want to start by saying, yes, there are still gendered barriers, but I don't want to put anybody off, you know, even uh, looking back on my experiences, you know, the joys that come with being a leader and having power in your hands to change things in line with your values absolutely outweighs any of the gendered bits, but there are still the gendered bits. And to get rid of them, I think of it in two stovepipes, really. Uh, not that they're not connected, but it helps me keep my thoughts in order. And the first of them is that there are a lot of structure, structural changes that need to be made to institutions of power because they've been developed over time around the rhythms of men's lives, not women's lives. And so whether it's, you know, in Australian uh, politics for a long period of time, Australian Parliament House had everything except a childcare centre, mm -hmm. uh, whether it's uh, here in the UK, uh, Stella Creasy was the first MP uh, to go on maternity leave and to have a replacement, a locum, who uh, looked after her constituency work when she was on leave. You know, there's all of these structural changes that need to be made to uh, change how these institutions work. And when I'm talking about structural changes, they're not just work and family life changes. They're actually too about who gets access and affirmative action rules can play a, a catalytic role in that. And they're even about how we view and define merit. 
you know, is merit in politics the man who can scream above the um, interjections in question time? Uh, is that what we see as merit? Because if being able to uh, lift your voice to the highest level is always going to be seen as a prerequisite of leadership, then clearly that's going to disproportionately play against women. Or are we defining merit in some other way? And then there's the sort of psychological, the stereotyping barriers, uh, which is if you said to, you know, most people around the world, you know, close your eyes and imagine, um, you know, a, a prime minister, a president, a CEO, a chair of the board, um, you know, one of these, uh, the, a professor, uh, I think most people would, if they were truthful, say in their mind's eye, they're seeing a man in a suit, a white man in a suit. Um, and until we break away from that stereotyping, then women are always going to be pushing against the unconscious bias which comes with being the outsider, the incongruent one, the one who doesn't quite fit. Uh, and in my book on women and leadership, which I co-authored with my great friend Ngozi Akonjiri-Wheeler, who now leads the World Trade Organization, uh, we try and unpack all of the research around these psychological barriers, which is very powerful. Yeah, but that's a very useful framework to, to look at it. And I guess um, I was trying to think, what, what do I see when I close my eyes? And uh, I'd like to think I it's not the case but it you know might you might well be right and even myself still still think of it that way so moving on to place what place do you think has impacted your thinking and politics or you know and and and, and life I think it's the place where I did politics for all of those years for a decade and a half, which was Australian Parliament House. You know, I was first uh, elected uh, into uh, the Australian Parliament in 1998. Uh, in the way of these things, uh, once the penny had finally dropped that I wanted to be in Parliament and I wanted to be in the National Parliament because I thought the issues I most cared about were defined by that level of government. It then took me 10 years of trying to get pre-selected by the Labor Party. So I stood for pre-selection on a number of occasions. I wasn't successful. I was ultimately pre-selected for a Senate spot, uh, the equivalent broadly of the House of Lords, uh, but wasn't elected. And so, you know, it was a vexed journey to get there. So when I was finally elected as the member for Lawler and walked into the Australian Parliament House and took my seat in the House of Representatives, uh, it was a moment of sheer joy and a fair bit of terror because there was so much to learn. And across the years that followed, um, you know, I guess uh, it shaped me in so many ways, being uh, an active political thinker, a representative, someone in the parliament who was responsible for representing a constituency. And then as I made my way through the Labor Party, uh, was increasingly important to Labor's uh, policy agenda, its electoral fortunes, and then ending up as Deputy Prime Minister and Prime Minister. Yeah. Remarkable. I mean, one of the things, um, you know, I just always wonder is, you know, what is it like <laughs> being prime minister? I mean, A, you know, A, what I've seen some inside from politics, um, probably a bit of an, ins you know, more of an insight than most people is just the high pressures, the constant pressures and 
the hours and just you know the 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 variety of issues that are coming your way and constantly and I think that's you know most people probably know that but might not un- appreciate just the extent of that but more generally I mean what was yeah what were your reflections on on having such you know fascinating job <laughs> I mean the pressure is unrelieved uh and in many ways I think people looking from the outside on politics uh, possibly don't understand that. You know, they they would see footage of the Prime Minister in question time. They would see footage of the Prime Minister um, out and about, you know, doing a press conference. Uh, but no one's got a camera trained at, at you when you're sitting at your desk hour after hour after hour, when you're in meetings, Cabinet, uh, other important decision-making meetings, and it is unrelieved, you know, it is so hard to get uh, time to yourself, time to decompress. And so there is all of that about it. There is the sense of responsibility uh, to your nation, to your world, to making sure that you get decisions right. Uh, but I don't want to paint too grim a picture because it also gives you more power in your hands than you will have at any other moment in your life to make change that you believe in. And so if there is some wrong that you've always wanted to see righted, then you've got the ability uh, to do it. Not just as an individual, because politics, a government is a team endeavour, And you have to get political consent from the parliament and from the community. So there's advocacy and bringing people along with you. But you can get incredibly big things done. And so I lived with both that sense of pressure but also possibility. And I had ringing in my ears as I was there Uh, My uh, great Labor predecessor, Paul Keating, who was Prime Minister, is uh, famous for the saying, not a day to waste. You know, however long you're going to be in government, it's never going to be long enough to do all the big things you believe in. So not a day to waste. We were a very action-oriented government. We believed in getting getting it done. Yeah. Yeah, amazing. Um, And then, of course, there's the international side of things. So... uh, huge amount of travel and especially traveling from Australia um I imagine there's many hours on on planes uh and you know meeting fellow country leaders and at summits and what have you representing your your country what were the main takeaways of that and is that also where you you know did you always have a sort of interest in foreign policy or did that sort of and international development more broadly which I know we'll come on to later but is that was that sparked by a lot of those interactions? I learned about foreign policy, uh, you know, when I was in the parliament and then, you know, as deputy prime minister sitting on the national security committee, and then obviously as prime minister, you've got all of these key responsibilities uh, going to meetings, you know, the UN, the G20 and bodies like that. It wasn't my principal passion. It's not what we took me into politics. I mean, my principal passion was around the politics of opportunity, education, making sure that every child, every adult uh, got the opportunity to uh, have those empowering tools at their disposal, all of the things that come with education. Uh, But, you know, being in our region of the world, Australia, foreign policy issues always do present. Mm -hmm. And it was great to have the opportunity to go to international meetings from time to time and pursue Australia's 
uh, foreign policy objectives, but also to just, you know, learn from and talk to other leaders. You know, there aren't that many people who know what it's like. And so to be in a room like the G20, where you could talk to uh, the leaders of the 20 major economies in the world and have a human conversation about how are you finding it? What's it what is it like? What are the big things for you? Uh, there was something very sustaining in that. Yeah, I can totally imagine that. Um, that makes a lot of sense. And then, you know, in those rooms, you, you know, there aren't that many women uh, as well. So, so what, you know, coming back to the leadership point, how did that feel? And, and you know, there obviously would have been um, some other amazing, inspiring world leaders like Angela Merkel and, of course, Theresa May, although you, you wouldn't have overlapped with her. But, you know, what was that like? And, and were you able to have those conversations with them as well about what it was like being a woman in, in those leadership roles? I went to some uh, international meetings where I was the only woman. Uh, I remember uh, particularly being at the Hawaii meeting of the Asia-Pacific Economic Community, which brings together uh, the nations of our region. And uh, this one was overseen by President Obama. Uh, so this is a collection of nations that if you aggregated their economies, uh, it would be worth more than 50% of the globe's economy. And I was the only woman there. Wow. So, you know, it's telling you a very profound yeah. story. I was yeah. the only woman at the Pacific Island Forum, uh, which brings together uh, the uh, islands of our region of the world. So uh, Australia and New Zealand, but then the islands in the Pacific. Uh, so places like, you know, the Cook Islands and uh, 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 Kiribati and uh, Tuvalu and places like that. Um so, you know, there were times when, you know, you were literally the, the only woman there and there was no other woman to talk to. But happily, uh, I went to a series of meetings where there were women present, uh, meetings like the G20, and the women would seek each other out and would have a conversation. You know, I remember uh, having conversations with Chancellor Merkel, with uh, Christine Lagarde, who attended in her role as representing the IMF um, and the International Monetary Fund. And there were would be moments when you would talk about the experience of being a woman leader. And that was incredibly refreshing because, once again, there's a loneliness about this in some ways. You know, the only person in Australia who knew what it was like uh, to be a woman prime minister was me. Um, and so to be able to go to an international meeting and to talk to someone whose experience uh, mightn't be exactly the same, but at least there was some common ground around it was really um, intriguing and very supportive. And would you find that, you know, the, the, the two things you just laid out earlier was sort of similar things that they identified as, as ways forward or were the challenges similar or would they differ per, per country? Uh, I think a little bit different, but more the same than you would imagine. Mm. And one of the things that uh, certainly struck me post-politics is when Ngozi and I uh, decided to write the book on women and leadership, we wanted it to bring uh, the global research base um, out uh, into the community, but we wanted to look at that research against lived experience. So we interviewed eight women from around the world, uh, political leaders, you know, Africa, Europe, uh, South America, uh, my region of the world, 
And we were asking ourselves the question, you know, can the experience of, you know, Prime Minister Solberg in Norway, given Norway is one of the richest countries on earth, can her experience really have anything in common uh, with President Joyce Bander of Malawi? And what we actually found is there was more in common than the stark differences in culture and context would lead you to believe. And that did uh, chime with the experience I had personally at these international meetings. That's so interesting. That is very interesting. So moving on to object, um, the hardest of the three. Um, what, what object has impacted your, your thinking? Uh, well, I've nominated my very battered Australian passport because whilst I did travel to international meetings when I was Prime Minister, you know, your job was at home. I was um, yeah. in Australia far, far more uh, than I was overseas. But in my life post-politics, I've basically been travelling uh, at least half the year of every year up until wow. the pandemic. Uh, and so that passport is incredibly battered. Uh, and I've travelled to all regions of the world, uh, pursuing uh, my work as chair of the Global Partnership for Education, which covers around 90 countries around the world and works to ensure every child is in school and getting a good quality education. Uh, my work here in London with the Global Institute for Women's Leadership at King's College and then public speaking and uh, other uh, trips that have taken me to many places, including uh, delightfully many parts of Africa. Uh, so that uh, very globalised experience has certainly profoundly shaped my thinking in this era of my life, the post-political era. Yeah, gosh, half a year. That is... <laughs> An extraordinary amount um, of travelling. Yes, that, that's, gosh, that's um, quite envious of that in, in many ways. <laughs> Have suitcase will travel or at least pre-COVID. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, COVID has changed everything. Um, so you mentioned GPE, which is um, the Global Partnership for Education, and, and it's such an important year uh, for GPE with their replenishment coming up and uh, the Global Education Summit that the UK is hosting together with Kenya. Now, the UK is, is you know, and UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson is incredibly passionate about this topic, in particular girls' education. But I just wondered, we touched upon COVID and how it sort of affected travel and life and every, every aspect of life. But one of the big impacts it's had is obviously on education worldwide and we're facing the largest um, education crisis in, in modern times so putting extra pressure on this um, education summit and replenishment for GPE and I just wondered why did you choose to become chair of the Global Partnership for Education you mentioned education has always been quite important in Australia and part of your your policies and your you know your your values but what made you decide to really help this particular cause? When I left politics, I made a very clear decision uh, that 
Well, the first decision I made was, uh, you know, once I'd ceased being Prime Minister, that that was the moment to exit politics. Uh, you know, others have made different decisions, but I don't think it helps your political party for uh, a former leader to necessarily be sort of looming up off the back bench. Um, that's been the Australian experience anyway. Uh, it, here it might be very, very different, but uh, that's been my experience back home. Uh, and... Once I'd made that decision and exited politics, I then had to think, well, what's the next stage of my life going to be about? And I knew that it didn't, I didn't want the next stage to be um, intervening in Australian politics from the outside. I wanted to do something else. But I wanted to be true to my values. And so when I examined, you know, on, on the way out of politics, my values, this sort of golden thread around education was still incredibly important to me. Uh, and, and, you know, I was therefore casting around for ways of making a contribution on education, but outside the realm of Australian domestic politics. And fortunately for me, at the same time that I was thinking like that, the Global Partnership for Education was looking for a new chair. So it was just a tremendously natural fit. Uh, and I commenced to chair the Global Partnership in uh, March 2014. So it was within, you know, seven, eight months of leaving politics. So it was a, you know, new big engagement for me very soon after. Yeah. Well, that's brilliant. And, and how serendipitous and how lucky for the Global Partnership that timings aligned so, so beautifully. And yes, as you mentioned, you've, you've been a chair for a long time. You've seen multiple replenishments already. To what extent do you think this replenishment is, you know, is it more important because of the context we find ourselves in? I think this replenishment is vitally important. And I think there's uh, a few things all going on at the same time around that. Uh, number one, I think uh, the focus and understanding, even pre-pandemic, about how big a change agent education is, particularly girls' education, was, you know, I've watched that in the seven years I've chaired GPE, uh, that realisation just grow and grow. I think people get it now that if we really want to set our world on a pathway to prosperity and peace, that a foundation stone for that is girls' education. And, and realising that promise of really investing in the education of girls. I think the uh, Global Partnership for Education uh, financing conference, the education summit that will be overseen by Prime Minister Johnson and President Kenyatta, uh, you know, that is the moment to really uh, double down on this new understanding around girls' education. Uh, second, uh, we know that the gains that have been made in the past on education, and we still had much, much more to do to ensure every child got a chance, but the gains that have been made are uh, critically at risk because of the pandemic. Uh, we know from earlier health crises, I'm thinking of things like Ebola, that when children are out of school for lengthy periods of time in developing country contexts, when schools reopen, there is a key risk that the most marginalised children, particularly the girls, never come back to school. 
And recognising that risk, the Global Partnership for Education mobilised urgently to make $500 million US available to help maintain educational continuity when schools were closed. And at the height of the pandemic, more than a billion children were out of school. Uh, and to make sure that as schools reopen, uh, children get the opportunity to make up the educational deficits that have emerged because they've been out of school, but the most marginalised kids make it back. Uh, and, you know, the whilst we've been doing that with that $500 million fund to really uh, ensure that the post-COVID era is one of inclusion and quality requires a new round of resourcing which is why we are very passionately pursuing uh, raising at least 5 billion US at this event in July to ensure that we can continue our work, but continue it at a new, improved, higher level, given the dimensions of the challenge now. And I know you've, um, you've, you know, you've been having meetings and of course you can't travel now, but I'm assuming whether it's over Zoom or <laughs> diplomacy and <laughs> lobby, lobbying governments will take a very different form and no doubt than previous replenishments, but you have been meeting um, country leaders about this um, in the run up to the replenishment. And um, in particular, there's obviously the G7 scheduled for June, which um, times perfectly ahead of the summit in July and um, I just wondered you know what you would like or what you think needs to happen or what you're expecting to happen in regards to making sure that the G7 leaders make this commitment ahead of the summit and also maybe your insight of these summits you know how, how do you go about that <laughs> and because uh, there's obviously so many different pressures on them as, as we discussed earlier as leaders and foreign policy objectives so yes just wondered <laughs> wondered about all of that it's quite a big question <laughs> <laughs> you yeah, know that that's fine look this is an incredible year of uh, UK leadership on the global stage you know the G7 uh, obviously uh, the global partnership for education uh, our the the summit uh, and financing conference and then later in the year uh, the climate change uh, cop meeting uh, all all uk based and i think uh, this does give uh, the uk an incredible uh, time of uh, opportunity and leverage given its foreign policy heft so at the G7, and I, I haven't attended a G7, but I've attended uh, comparable uh, style meetings like the G20, uh, you know, the priorities of the host, the way the host shapes the discussions really do matter in the room. Yeah. And uh, so right now, you know, the foreign policy architecture of the UK would be leaning into shaping that agenda. There would be all sorts of uh, bilateral discussions at leaders level, at Prime Minister Johnson's level, shaping that agenda. Also uh, at the level of relevant ministers, including, of course, the Foreign Secretary and at uh, Sherpa level. So, you know, at these summits, uh, each leader has a Sherpa uh, who uh, helps them helps them get to the, the, the top uh, in the way Sherpas do for mountain climbers. Uh, and in all of those discussions, there would be uh, the aim to reflect uh, in the accord that comes out of the G7 uh, priorities that the UK holds dear 
And one of those priorities clearly is girls' education. So uh, we are hoping and anticipating uh, that at the G7, there is a focus on education, particularly mm -hmm. on girls' education, on the need to put resources in. And we do need to see a substantial uplift in the uh, investment by the G7. I mean, we are talking about um, nations that are hugely important to the ge geopolitics of the world, uh, that are hugely important economically, and their leadership will matter. Yes, and it's interesting what you say about the role of the host in particular. And, and this is why this year is so fascinating from a foreign policy perspective for Brits, because, of course, we are hosting an awful lot <laughs> with the G7, the, the Education Summit and COP26 um, in November as well. And so what, how does and can girls' education help governments meet their other foreign policy objectives and priorities? Because it really does interlink with so much. It, it, it most certainly does. And look, the evidence is just so clear now that if you uh, educate a girl, uh, she will likely uh, go on uh, to become an empowered actor in the economy. So you will be making a contribution to economic progress, to prosperity. Uh, she will likely become a mother who chooses to have fewer children. Her children will be more likely to survive infanthood. They will be more likely to be vaccinated. And when you put all of those things together, you obviously get on an upwards uh, pathway uh, where each generation is uh, more empowered, more educated, able to make their way in the world. And if we look at the uh, development of our own nations and our own economies, uh, that has been key to it. You know, mass education, education for all has been key uh, to ending up being, uh, by the standards of the world, uh, wealthy nations who can chart their own course. And that is what we would aspire for every human being and every nation on the planet, uh, so that in the future we no longer have to talk about overseas development aid because uh, nations are peaceful and prosperous. Uh, and there is also a clear correlation between education and the ability of uh, nations, communities to find peaceful pathways to resolving conflict uh, rather than uh, violent pathways. Uh, there is also implications for climate change. Uh, you know, it's uh, about uh, communities being educated uh, to deal with the climate crisis, to make their own changes, uh, to deal with the climate crisis. But the power of girls' education and the choosing to have less children um, means that uh, we are talking about, you know, different rates of global population. There was an estimate done a few years ago by the Brookings Institution that if every girl on the planet had been educated to the end of secondary school, that peak global population would have been two billion less uh, than what we were on the current pathway for. Uh, two billion is a very big number. Uh, so, you know, the ripple effects of education, particularly educating girls, are everywhere. Or put another way, we cannot achieve the biggest things we want to as a global community without getting education right. Absolutely. It's the first step to a role, leadership role as well. <laughs> yes, it is. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, you mentioned the battered passport 
uh, and all the travels you've done and in particular you know with, with your GPE hat on and you've visited many Africa countries but you know there's 90 countries where GPE operates um, you know across the globe when you're on the ground and you see it firsthand the impact or you know you meet the girls or you know also see the boys who are being educated what 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 have you taken away from that experience firsthand? You see hope. I mean, I think uh, that's what uh, summarises for me. Um, you know, I've I've visited so many schools in my lifetime uh, in Australia uh, and around the world through the Global Partnership for Education. And whilst what is a school will be incredibly different, you know, in Australia, it could be a sophisticated building with everything that moves and shakes in terms of information technology, or a school could be a teacher under a tree. I've seen both models. But whenever I'm in a school, seeing children lit up by the joy of learning, what I see is hope and uh, hope for the future for that individual child, but hope for the future for that nation and for our world. And when I get to travel for GPE, what also strikes me so profoundly is how valued education is. You know, in, uh, in my own country, I suspect this is true of the UK, uh, pre-pandemic, there would have been uh, days when uh, every parent would have seen their uh, child reluctantly slump out the door to go to school, oh, I've got to go to school, uh, you know, because we take this opportunity for granted in countries where this opportunity is not to be taken for granted. Uh, you see children do extraordinary things to get to school um, and you see a real joy in learning. You know, children who will literally walk hours to make sure that they can be at school. And it makes me think if they've got that kind of enthusiasm, if they're prepared to do so much, surely we... Uh, can meet that with the resources and care and concern that truly gives them that opportunity. Yeah, that's beautiful. Going back to you know everything you've just covered, you know you've you've seen been in rooms and that most people never get to go in. You've you've been to countless countries. You must have you know we've only touched on a, a few of the experiences you've have you, you've had throughout your career and, and lifetime to date. But what would you say is, is one of the most bizarre experiences you've encountered uh, throughout just looking back? <laughs> oh, heavens, bizarre experiences. Uh, perhaps being in the Cook, Island, uh, Cook Islands for the uh, Pacific Islands Forum, uh, where as part of the traditional welcome, uh, I sat on this uh, flower-decked wooden seat which had poles and then four men lifted the poles onto their shoulders and I was carried through the air. I think that that would be up there. That sounds fun. <laughs> that sounds excellent. Cook Islands, I'll take a note. Um, and um, this is a question I ask many guests and they often answer with world leaders. So it's quite funny um, asking someone who used to be a world leader, but if you were to host a, a, a fantasy or dinner party, you could invite anyone you you liked from uh, around the world. Who, who would who would make that shortlist? 
Oh, um, how many people? <laughs> Good. I just realised, I don't think I mentioned that. Let's, four, four people. Uh, four people from around the world. Um, wow, uh, what, what, a, what a wonderful possibility. Um, uh, I would certainly uh, want to see uh, President Obama and Michelle Obama there. I am huge. Uh, I've had, obviously, the uh, opportunity to uh, do things with uh, both of them, both within politics and beyond politics, uh, and I am huge admirers of both of them. So I think uh, they would have to take two of the spots. Uh, I would love to meet uh, Helen Mirren, so maybe she would have mm -hmm. to take one of the spots. And I would add... Uh, Hilary Mantel because I am such a fan of her fiction. Brilliant. I think many people, if they weren't already, have become a fan over lockdown <laughs> of her work. And then finally, um, what, what's the best advice that um, you've ever been given? The best advice I've ever been given uh, was uh, actually given to me by a Brit, uh, it was given to me by Alan Milburn, who was uh, a uh, cabinet member in Tony Blair's government. Uh, I got to know uh, Alan because he uh, was routinely coming to Australia and uh, is a fantastic person to talk politics with. Uh, when I became Prime Minister, he rang me up to congratulate me, but he said, uh, you're going to be under extraordinary pressure, but I'm recommending you find a few hours uh, to sit down by yourself in the quiet and write out your sense of purpose, the, the purpose that will drive the government you lead uh, because you've got to be crystal clear on purpose and you've got to have a touchstone on the tough days when it's hard to stay on course. And I did precisely that and it made a very big difference. That is a very good piece of advice. That's fascinating. Now, I said final question, but just to build on that final, final question is what advice would you give um, any woman who is considering, you know, wanting to take on a leadership role either in politics or uh, outside of politics in private sector or, you know, NGO sphere or any leadership role, really, what, what, what advice would you pass on to them? Well, go for it would be the piece of advice. Uh, don't be daunted. We need more women leaders in our world. Uh, yes, there will be moments when you are treated uh, in a different fashion simply because you are a woman. You are treated uh, as lesser because you're a woman. You are in the fortunate position where you've seen this movie before. You've seen the experiences of other women leaders. And so you can get ready for that moment and know what you are going to do when it comes. But don't be put off. Go for it. Brilliant. Well, thank you so much, Julie. It's been an absolute pleasure and privilege speaking to you. Been terrific. That was a great conversation. Thank you. Thank you for listening and downloading. If you enjoyed that, please leave a review and subscribe. As mentioned, we've got some very exciting guests coming up, including Mark Sedwell, Alistair Campbell and Liz Zug. And if you have any questions you want to put to them or guest requests, do get in touch via Twitter. I'm at Laura Round. And I want to close with a final message from WaterAid. Because this year, the UK is in a unique leadership position as it hosts the G7 and the COP26 Climate Summit. 
Our convening power should drive global investment for COVID recovery and for climate resilience. And that is why WaterAid has been working with HRH Prince Charles to launch the Resilient Water Accelerator as part of the Sustainable Markets Initiative. This joint public-private initiative seeks to unlock more climate finance so that everyone everywhere can adapt to the effects of climate change. For more information on WASH and WaterAid's work, visit washmatters.wateraid.org.